This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today, a very special friend of the show, Mr. Mark Tang. He's the guide to personal finance on CBC's On the Coast with Gloria Makarenko. He's also partner at Foundation Wealth, an all-around good guy. All-around good guy, past guest, fan favorite. I would say he's been on the show four or five times. He's, I, all, he's a, almost a five-timer. I, I yeah, he may, he may very well be. I have friends who set alarms to catch him on... Thursdays on really? CBC. That's that's true. Uh, I I know people that love Mark Ting's advice on the CBC and and think about it this way: what he's on CBC for maybe five seven minutes. We got him for an hour. Yeah, so, so, an hour to unpack and, and, what's happened in the last year. And this is really this is what what are we what are so, we titling so this here, program? Here's here's the thing: we're talking to Mark today. The title of the show is investing lessons from the pandemic. Right, and basically we're looking at this two ways. Right. This is unscripted marketing thoughts on markets and investing generally. He's giving three places he would put his money today. Right now. Post-pandemic, roaring 20s, inflation, high interest rates, Bitcoin. Who knows? We're in a very, very interesting moment. The top three places Mark would put his money, that's on the show. But then we go back and we say, okay, Mark, last time you were on the show was right before the pandemic hit. A lot's changed how did you maneuver through the last 12 to 18 months? And Mark basically spells out what he did and you can start to see certain rules and systems that Mark uses 
to analyze markets, and it's very, very compelling stuff, and I think everyone's going to learn a lot. This is the exact type of show you want to listen to right now in a time where, as Andre Pavlov recently said on the show, where the heck do you put your money right no now? No kidding. Right? No kidding. The, the, the stock market's high. Real estate prices are high. Did real estate make this list? Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. And here's, here's the final thing I'll say about Mark. Mark deals with very high net. How do you say that? You say high net individuals. High net individuals. Yeah, yes. I, was, I was thinking like I was going down the wrong path. You can't get Mark on the phone if you want to ask him. But this is an hour of unscripted marketing giving thoughts on the market, and he just goes. It's great. I love it. I love it. This is a great episode. Can't wait for this episode. But before we get to that, Matt, we got some VCREP to discuss. Oh, some real big VCREP. Vancouver <laughs> Commercial Real Estate Podcast. As of today, yes, it's got 20 reviews on iTunes. Yeah. As of today, it's in the top 40 business podcasts on Apple Podcasts, yes. which is incredible. We're two episodes in, or when I say we, I mean Corey Wright. Yes. Two episodes into this new endeavor. This is called getting some traction and filling a gap in the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we've talked about this show a lot on our program, but really the the strategy here is uh, we're trying to fill a void for commercial real estate in the city of Vancouver, a show where you can talk to people in the development community, people in the commercial real estate community. Also, like a lot of 101 basics for people that are thinking about dipping their toe in commercial real estate. This is a net positive for the city of Vancouver. That's right. And uh, I would say that, that people ask for it and uh, they are responding. Yes. This is a very, uh, this, this show is gaining a lot of traction. Very exciting stuff. Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Subscribe today. For sure, I don't think anyone would be disappointed. And what else do we got, Adam? Let's yeah. let's talk about the market. Yeah, let's talk about the market because a lot of interesting things going on in the market. We've been talking about the market being spotty for weeks, kind of you know certain things selling in multiples, but it feels like it's slowing down. And now, generally speaking, everyone you're talking to is saying, "Oh, we've peaked. The market is softening. The market is softening." You know, here's what I'll say, um, and I mean, I've been I've I've been in still in a lot of multiple offer situations on both uh, our listings and then also with buyers. Right. Um, you know, if you're a seller right now and you're feeling like you missed it, the market is still very active. Um, you know, when you've been driving 180 miles on the on the highway and you reduce speed to 160. By the way, you're you're a fan of Fast and the Furious and you're, and you're speed racing your friend, I guess, at those speeds. But if you've been going really fast and you reduce speed to, to slightly lower, it feels slow, but the mar- it's still moving, right? Like well, if it, you're, it, 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 that, and that's the thing. Stuff's still turning over. This is, I, I'm curious to see what May numbers looks like because, uh, because the transaction, the number of transactions just from what we're doing and what we're seeing and what the team's doing, it's busy out there. It's, it's still busy. busy. It's not March. It's not where people are full in full panic mode, but it is still very busy out there. Although strategies have to change, right? Yeah. Because we're not quite in that mode where you can be guaranteed that you're going to get uh, ultra positive result after five days so on the let's market. Let's unpack that. Let's unpack with that. a bait price. Yeah, and so by bait price, you know what what you see in really hot markets is you often people just go go on for ninety nine cents and they let the market dictate. And what I mean by that is you you know you find you go on at a uh, a strategically low price, and then you let people bid up the property, right? Um, now, a lot of people, especially over the last few weekends, we've been seeing a lot of people are getting caught where they put it on for a low price, they don't hit what actually is their reserve or what they feel is market value, and then they cancel and they relist 
at a more appropriate price reflection of of what you know previous sales are, recent comps are, and so that's how in a lot of cases the strategy has shifted. It's went from one of you know put it on low, let people bid it up, to put it on more around market market value, right? A more right. conservative and, approach. And and you'll still see those yeah very aggressive approaches. It's just it seems like it's hit and miss right now. You're right. like oh they got skunked. Oh they hit it out of the park. And it's kind of seems like week by week, things are changing. Some weeks seem like the results are much better than other weeks. Right. It's very tough to figure out. Well, that's but the I, spotty nature of it. Yeah. Right? But one thing that I'm seeing, and and you've we've, we've been talking a lot about this in the last few weeks, and this genuinely feels new. Uh, before, it used to be people put something on for 99 cents and won a buck 50. And when in, you know, after the first weekend, if they didn't get that result, they'd relist it at a buck 69 and, and wait and then, you know, negotiate down to a buck 50 or a buck 45 or whatever, but they would change their price after the change first the week. Change the course of action. Exactly. Sure. Now we are seeing, I'm seeing two things in this market and this genuinely feels new. People putting it on at 99 cents and just subtly suggesting we want actually a buck 50, not holding off on offers, just showing the property to anyone who- A hundred times a day or yeah, whatever. Who yeah. genuinely believe that in asking prices is meaningful uh, in some respects. And and in a lot of cases, it just seems like now it is not. And if you're if you're the general public and you're not in the industry, this might seem like it's it's it, we're we're meshing the two together. And I want to I want to make that distinction. So there's the strategy of going on aggressively priced and then holding off on offers and letting the market dictate with the intention to sell your home. And then there's this new strategy that seems to be out there where people are going on super aggressively. So like say like the average price per square foot in Yale Town for this type of product is twelve hundred a foot. And someone just lists a townhouse for 800 a foot. So everyone's like, well, wait, what's going on with that? And everybody wants to see it and yeah. understand and it. And then you say, okay, well, they're holding off on offers, but they're not. But they're not holding off on offers. And then people want to see it and they want to view it. And then they won't accept what they're asking for. In fact, they won't even accept anything close. Often they want 1,300 a foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Often they want more, right? So it's this new strategy. It's the weirdest. This is the the only way I can kind of make sense of it to explain it, but it's like I put a bike on Craigslist for $5 and then everybody on Craigslist called me and they're like, I'll take that bike. They're like, I'll oh my God, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's a, that's a 2018 Norco. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a Norco Mountaineer. Um, that's an amazing bike. And I'm like, no, it's, it's actually, I want significantly more. And then they're like, well, how much do you want? And I'm like, I won't tell you, but put an offer yeah, in. Do and your I best. really want do 600 or I want a thousand or whatever. Right. But it's, it's a really bizarre new strategy and I really I hope, hope it doesn't I hope it doesn't it, stay. I, I feel um, like I've dealt with this two or three times in the last week for some strange reason. It's weird how kind of the zeitgeist changes and suddenly you start seeing new trends. But yeah uh, but it is an it's an it's a very annoying this one. is one that, this is uh, one uh, where it's a spur in your sight. It, it I'll tell you what it's frustrating for us. It's frustrating for buyers. I think it makes everyone look silly. And I will say that 100%. Uh, stupid strategy. Stop doing it. <laughs> okay. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, and Matt, one more thing about uh, spotty markets uh, overall. Um, you know, we always tell people when they're buying real estate, even if it is for their their own, you know, they're an end user and they're going to live in the property. It's always an investment, but you know, sometimes you have to pull back and understand what your goals are because we've had uh, in, in spotty markets, 
Uh, people are start treating the the real estate market like they think it's like the stock market. Well, right? exa- that's exactly like the it. same volatility I, as Bitcoin right now. You can you can kind of watch when people start talking about, oh, hey, I heard it peaked. I heard the market slowing down. Right, and people collectively start pumping the brakes, and suddenly there's opportunities. You can write subject offers, uh, and and a lot of the people who three months ago wish they could write subject to offers are now not buying. They're, they've and, left and the building. They've left the building. And you want to you kind of tell somebody like, hey, we're not, you're not buying Tesla stock here. You're buying a place to live. And you're not selling next week. You're not <laughs> selling next week. You're, you're moving into a place. And with these interest rates, if you put your head down, you forget about real estate for five, seven, eight, 10 years, you're going to pick your head out of the sand and go, Man, am I glad I did that. And I feel like this market, more so than other markets, because of the kind of way that we think about it as a stock market, it's going to collapse. It's going to go up by 20%. That there's there's more analysis paralysis, I think, and there's more uh, herd mentality and listening to, oh, what happened on Monday? Were there, were there, did they get the offers they want? Oh, the market's slowing down. Oh my God, panic ensues. And and it's just a collective. I think we've kind of been talking about this, right? It's a collective. Everyone, just think about your goals. Yeah, pull this, back. This is not. This isn't penny stocks we're talking about here. Exactly. And this is like I had a conversation. I, I told you about this. I, I had a conversation with someone recently who had read in a in a forum exchange on a private Facebook group about the the market collapsing. That they had basically sold their house in East Vancouver. And now they've, they're priced out of that market and the market's done, you know, 15, 20% since that sale. And the reality is, is that it was his, his home and, yeah. and he sold it and, and now it's gone and now he can't necessarily get back in. And it was a very bad decision because of that mentality. Understand what your goals are, feel secure in the market and make decisions based on your goals because long-term goals in real estate it's time in the market, not timing the market, and this is not a stock market. And especially with the interest rates, like yeah. especially with these interest rates. And and here's like an example, right? As a final thought, CMHC eighteen percent declines last year. Evan Siddell. Uh CMHC just came out with projections of price increases through twenty twenty three. So I don't know. The best forecasters out there, and we've had many people on to talk about CMHC forecasting on this show, and to a person they say, some of the best minds in in the country's economic community are working at CMHC. Uh, It's very hard to predict, so consider your own goals, consider your family's future, and act in that regard because it's very tough. Absolutely. And last but not least, Matt, this week we are sponsored by Oakwind Realty. That's right, Oakland Realty, our brokerage, best brokerage in town. If you are an aspiring agent, a new agent, an older agent, or not so just old in the business, a little long in the tooth, as right. we say in the business, and you're looking to make a change, definitely consider Oakland. I would say more than consider Oakland yeah. because it is, in my mind, the best brokerage in the city. Oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. That is Oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. You'll meet Michael Morgan and the gang. You will also get a huge incentive by listening to this podcast and telling them we sent you. For sure. And without further ado, Matt, this is a great episode with Mark Ting. I can't wait. What would Mark Ting buy right now? Three things. I'll give you a hint. AirPods. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) 
Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Mark Ting. He is the guide to personal finance on CBC's On the Coast with Gloria Makarenko and also partner at Foundation Wealth. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Yourself? Yeah, no, we're doing great. It's been a while. I think last time we talked to you, Mark, was right before the global pandemic. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. No problem. Nothing's changed since then. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in your world. (laughs) So, Mark, a lot of our listeners have probably heard you on the program or maybe on CBC as well. But can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I love real estate. I've been investing in it for decades now. And whether it's investing locally or internationally, let's say in the U.S., I did several deals where I bought 21 apartments back in the heyday when the Canadian dollar was above par and that worked out really well. My theme is always cash flow. I'm always concentrating on cash flow. Whatever I buy, I want to make sure that it pays for itself almost with 100% financing as I didn't put anything down because that's my sort of buffer. And then if it does that and then prices go down, as long as the cash flows, I'm not out of pocket. And if I lose my job, things can still be sustained. So recently I have bought a duplex. I think that was the last thing that we talked about. I picked it up at the beginning of 2020. So a very interesting time to buy a duplex. I typically do this with partners. So I spread the risk, spread the liability. We do it together because I find mostly the style of investing that I do, which is very labor intensive. Like we buy literally derelict houses in great neighborhoods. So the duplex that I'm talking about was inhabitable. Like no one was in there. It was leaking. It was moldy. It was disgusting. If I showed you pictures, it'd give you nightmares. And then what we do is we go in there, we fix it up, we make it so it's out of standard where my family or my partner's family would be comfortable living in there, and then we rent it out. So that's the type of thing that I think the city really needs, like unutilized properties, and now we're filling them with people. So, you know, that duplex, which was empty for a long time, like well over a year, now has seven people in there. It was an ordeal, like doing a renovation during COVID, supply chain issues. Everybody's talked about the cost of lumber and materials. The fact that if you think back of this time last year, or maybe a little bit earlier, like the world was going to end. Like we were talking about transit being shut down, all the stores closing. The city city being bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. So just getting materials was difficult. And to be honest, we talked about giving up on it. We're like, okay, this is going to be too hard. We were going to sell, but, you know, thankfully we didn't because. It's gone up in value and a lot of people have a nice place to live. And yeah, it's, it's cash flowing now, <laughs> finally. Well, Mark, it's an interesting, specifically this duplex in Mount Pleasant is an interesting property to talk about because as I recall, you bought well at the start of 2020, but you talk about mitigating risk and then you literally hit like a global pandemic hit, something totally unpredictable. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about how that you know, changed your plan and go deeper into kind of the way that you mitigated those risks and kind of navigated the last year? Yeah. So I'm all about risk mitigation. That's what I do on a day-to-day basis. So my real job being a partner at Foundation Wealth, we take high net worth clients' portfolios. We make sure that they have enough money, that their money basically outlives them. So going into any project, and I would consider myself right now, like sort of in the mom and pop category, like we only do one project 
now every couple of years type of a thing. Going into this, we bought the place actually in November of 2019, before there was even a talk about a pandemic or COVID. It wasn't even on the radar. And we closed in January. So leading up to that, I had lines of credits ready. Like that's the way we do it. We typically buy the house cash to get the best deal. And then what we do is we fix it up and we get to a point where we think it's now worth being appraised on. And then we get a mortgage on that property and then we pay back our personal lines of credit. So the liability stays with the house. So what we did was I had a huge line of credit. We knew it was going to cost about $150,000 to $200,000 to get this place up to snuff. So that's livable. We were going to do it gradually. So we wanted somebody in there as soon as possible, because if you got someone living in that property, you know, things like insurance are just so much cheaper. And it's for a safety perspective, you got tools lying around. It's great that someone lives in there. So we really rushed to get it livable, you know, not great, but livable. And we just put a tenant in there quite quickly and charged him like very minimal rent because they were doing each other a favor. But in the meantime, I had a bunch of cash. And the thing that we talked about last time I was on the show is diversification, how I like to have real estate, like physical real estate, real estate in the stock market style, plus, you know, regular stocks, bonds, all that sort of thing. So going into it, I was doing fine. Like I had my other assets, which were doing really well. And then I was going to use that, sell some of those to fund this project. But then the global pandemic hit and the stock market didn't really take a dive at the beginning. Right around March, it really, you know, panic set in. People were panicking. They were selling stuff indiscriminately. And the stock markets dropped about 30, 35%, we'll say. So at that time, you look around and you're like, okay, well, that wasn't expected. So Luckily, because of diversification, I had my real estate holdings and some mortgage funds that I had. And those things, what they're good about is they don't move that much. They're stock market agnostic. The stock market's dropping. These things often go up or stay the same or basically don't move. They're not connected. No real correlation. So what I did was I was like, my stock market portfolio is getting crushed, but I had a fair amount in REITs and mostly private REITs. And that's the key, private REITs. And the private REITs were doing well. They're up 8 9% for the year. So what I did was you want to sell high and buy low. So that's what I did. So even though the, this portion of my portfolio was doing outstanding, it was like the, the one shining light, I sold it because I didn't want to sell my other positions for that were lower. I sold it mostly to shore up cash because, again, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if banks were going to close. I didn't know if the government was going to step in. I wanted a war chest. I wanted a decent amount of line of credit that I could access. I wanted a bunch of cash just sitting there in cash just until things got figured out. Ultimately, it was a good move. I got really lucky. So I sold that. It was up. And then the world didn't end. The government stepped in. They basically printed up a ton of money and just gave it to everybody. Everybody's savings rates went up. The banks allowed for mortgage deferrals, all these things to help the housing market go up. And then luckily, I took advantage of it. I like Once I saw that there was a change in attitude, the world wasn't going to end, I took that money that I set aside in cash, I put it back in the stock market, because then it was selling at very low levels. And that did extremely well. And I got very fortunate because real estate got bailed out too. And real estate did very well. So it sounds great. Made a lot of money in 2020. It was one of my best years, but it was probably also one of my most stressful years because every day was, you didn't know what happened. And if you run a business like myself, 
I had staff to think about. I had all these things to worry about. I got a beautiful office that is completely empty for a year. All those things you have to worry about. But ultimately, you know, the diversification saved me. Like it really, really helped. And that's why I really pushed that. Also adding to my title, (laughs) besides the CBC and the partner thing, I'm one of your several guests now that also teach at SFUs. Tomorrow my class starts. So I'll be teaching students personal finance. And that's why those students, I really, really push the need for diversification, having different asset classes, similar to what your guest last week was saying. I really agreed with a lot of what he said about personal finances for 17-year-olds. That was a lot of really good advice there. Oh, yeah. Doug Allen, that was great. So just wondering, Mark, and that's great to hear about SFU, what did you buy when you went back into the stock market? What did you focus on? Let's talk about what I did versus what most people did. Because I was listening to your show throughout the whole time. I always listen to your show. And I remember you had a guest on and I knew the answer before you asked the question. So you asked the questions like, oh, how has COVID affected your business? And I knew the answer would be amazingly well. The reason I knew that is because if I looked at my portfolios and I looked at what's down and what's up, most people will want to gravitate to what's doing well. So they'll typically pick the positions and go into that because don't think that trend is theirs. I think this person was a private real estate type of a person. And I knew they would do well. Now it attract a lot of attention and attract a lot of dollars. So essentially what a lot of people do during these circumstances, which is a mistake in my mind, is they sell low. They see what's crashing, stock market's going down. They sell out at the bottom and then they buy something that's doing really well. And in this case, private real estate, whereas I did the complete opposite. I always say, Always, no matter what's in the back of your mind, uh, you don't want to give in to the fear and greed type dynamics, but you always want to sell high and buy low. So what I did was, you know, I didn't time the bottom perfectly. I had to wait. You had to wait till these things phase out and you want to see sort of where there's a directional change. So I ended up buying quite a lot of tech stocks, all these buy at home, stay at home type stocks. And because they were coming from such a low base, they did really, really well. They were you know, many of them went up three, four hundred percent. Now, another caveat, since that time in 2020, they probably peaked out in February. And now a lot of those same stocks are down like decent amount, 50% or so. But still, like in a year to year basis, you're still more than doubled your money, which is incredibly good. And the reason they've fallen off is because of this inflation narrative, which I'm sure you're hearing about because inflation really affects real estate. So inflation tends to be good for hard assets like, you know, real estate, Bitcoin, gold, those sorts of things, but it's not good for high valuation, high growth tech stocks. So that's why this inflation narrative is really prominent right now. So it's something to look at. So if you're of the mindset where you want to buy low or lower, then I'm sort of (laughs) feeling that you know, there's, there's some buy to dip opportunities in these high growth areas. I still really like real estate. Once those high tech stocks started doing really well, even though I thought they were going to go higher, I just do what you always do. You have to have sort of a game plan. And at the end of 2020, I replenished all my private REIT positions. So I took some profits from there. So I've sold high and I bought the private REITs, which weren't low, but they were nearly as high as the other ones. So now I still have my diversification because if you ever sell out of one position completely, you should always look for an opportunity to get back into that position so you're more balanced. 
that make sense? <laughs> totally, totally does, totally does. So if I understand correctly, you sold private REITs early in 2020, built a war chest till you were comfortable, bought into high growth tech stock, sold out of that back into the REITs in early 2021. Yeah, I wouldn't say I sold out of high tech growth stocks. I still have a bunch of them. I still believe in the area, but I trimmed. I took profits. So if something doubled, okay, that went up a lot. Or if it tripled, that went up a lot. So I took money there and I knew that I wanted real estate. They do completely different things. I love real estate and I thought, okay, now it's a good time to buy. So then I took some profits and I bought the private stuff. I bought some public real estate things and I was also looking for properties here in Vancouver. And we put some bids out there. And because of the way I bid, which is always to lowball, none of them came to fruition because lowballs just don't work in this market. I looked at the data this morning and basically everywhere across BC is still considered a seller's market. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was looking in Bowen Island. You know, I, I wish I got some of that because Bowen Island really took off. Uh, uh, I was, the stats on yeah. Bowen are crazy. Yeah, and I was looking at it in like the summer. Anyways, missed opportunities, but that's the nature of my game. For every opportunity that's out there, I'm going to miss 99% of them. And because of the way I sort of make my bids, I get the 1%, but the 1% are usually great deals. And mm-hmm. I tend to look for the great deals, but for that, you have to be patient. And you also, in my mind, you also have to not really want them that much. Like that property in West 14, I wasn't actively looking. It was there. It was an opportunity I saw that no one would really touch this place. And, you know, we had lots of problems with it too. That's what I mean. People think it's easy to make money in this space. It's not. Like so much frustration, so many issues with the city, so many issues with various other things. So it's one of those things if you're negotiating from a place where you don't really care if you lose the deal, then you're always at an advantage because your emotions aren't really into it. Harder to do when it's your personal residence though, when you're finding a place to live. So Mark, one thing about you, of course, is you're always, you weren't actively looking, but by the sounds of things, you kind of live and breathe potential investment opportunities, right? Partly because that's the space you work in, but you know, somebody who's not actively looking for real estate, who's not interested in real estate investing, isn't going to come across that opportunity in Mount Pleasant. Can you talk a little bit about going against the grain but how you analyze various markets and see opportunities, because it's one thing to say, be fearful when other people are greedy or whatever. It's another thing to know when to fold them, know when to run away, know when to get in. You know, I'm thinking about Bowen Island in the summer, cryptocurrency. I know you're big on crypto. Just kind of general thought on how you analyze opportunities. I mean, the first thing, whether it's crypto, real estate, company, you have to believe in it. I'm not a flipper. And I tried the flipping thing. I built two houses in Steveston Village a couple of years back. And we built them, we flipped them, we sold them. And I hated that. Like the whole experience, I learned a lot from it, but I knew I did not want to do that. It it caused me way too much anxiety. It wasn't worth it. So you got to sort of know yourself. And for me, I want to believe in a vision. I want to believe in an investment over the long term. So if I believe in cryptocurrency, if I believe that Bitcoin is going to do well over the long term, I'll buy into it and I'll buy into it whenever I think I can, really, if you got the money. Real estate sort of the same thing. I believe in the narrative of real estate. So the place like West 14th, why did I buy it? Well, I'm thinking of the future. I'm always thinking of the future. So I think that, okay, Mount Pleasant, where it is, it's going to be surrounded by SkyTrain stations which are about 10 to 13, 15 minutes away. 
which you don't want to be too close. You won't want to be too far. And I can just imagine that there's going to be a ton of pressure for density, which makes sense. You should have density around uh, transit hubs. It was a place that was a duplex. There was that older house that was cut in half and it was forced into being a duplex, which is sort of what the city is talking about now, where they're allowing triplexes and fourplexes, but you're sort of forced into making them that way and they're not giving you a lot of extra space. So this one was forced into a duplex. It had a nice backyard, very centrally located, and the backyard could also have a laneway house. So the laneway house, we thought about it from a number of different ways, but essentially what it meant was I could have three individual dwellings on one plot of land, and I think we paid $1.4 million for that. So to me, that was a deal if you believe that real estate's going to go up, if you believe in inflation, if you believe that there's not going to be a housing pop. And I believe that those won't be the case. I believe that real estate's going to keep going up for many reasons. And then it just gave me flexibility. I always like flexibility. You know, I have partners in this. There's three of us. So ultimately, one of us could own one property if we chose to do that. And then there's the cost. As I say, when I do my numbers, I'm very strict. Like I'm going in there and trying to cash flow with 0% down, which is it's, yeah. it's hard to cash flow with 50% down. <laughs> so something else has to give. And that was the state of repair of this place and the amount of work I and my partners would be willing to put in. But, you know, we figured... This could be a great place. I don't live in Vancouver, and I thought maybe in the future I might want to live there. Maybe my kids might be able to move in there. We're even thinking about putting up the laneway. Like, we don't really have the money now, but I'm sure you know. But, like, it takes about five years to get a laneway in there, just the paperwork, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And it takes about six months to build. And I don't know. How much does it cost right now? $500 a square foot to build, just the build, not the land. So even if you got a thousand square foot laneway house. That's like half a million dollars, about half a million to 600,000. If you stratify it, there's other consequences there too. If you stratify it, they don't just look at the laneway. They look at the existing house and they'll ask you to put uh, your existing house up to code, basically 2021 code. So our house was built in 1904. It was renovated in 2020. We renovated it again now, but still like there's a bunch of stuff that's in there that's not up to 2020 code. But it just gave us flexibility of what we could do in the future, mostly when you have partners. And the main thing, of course, is that it cash flows. That's that's sort of how I look at it. I do believe that there's opportunities. There's a short period of time, like a couple of months, where people were asking me about real estate, what should they be buying? And I was like, go to downtown condos. I was hearing big discounts. People are sort of fire selling them. But that lasted like six weeks, and then they went back up again. The work from home thing, I think it's real. So communities on the outskirts, but that's being bid up right now as well. So everywhere's hot. It's really tough. You have to, you have, if you're planning for buying a house, my attitude on that's changed a lot. Whereas before I would tell young people or whoever who is saving up and they have to save up like such a big down payment now that they should probably invest that money instead of just keep it in cash. If they have sort of a a risk tolerance, if they understand the risk, because there's market risk, that's the risk of going up and down. And now the inflation risk is so high. It's overtaken the market risk, in my opinion. And that's the cost of being priced out of the market. And, you know, we're seeing that everywhere with the cost of building houses, labor and everything, and particularly the the government intervention type policies type of a thing that really causes prices to go up. You have to keep up with that and keeping it in a bank account, which, you know, before you get three, four percent and now you're getting like one percent. 
it's really tough to do. So you have to be a lot more strategic in my mind with your money. You can't just leave it and just wait to buy. Inflation should be your number one worry, in my opinion, whether it be your retirement, whether it be housing, everything, even wage growth. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, before you mentioned the inflation narrative, clearly inflation is a very real concern right now or something everyone should be thinking about. Can you talk a little bit more about how you can hedge against inflation, but also what the future looks like and how this impacts, I guess, the real estate market? Yeah, you've probably heard about the wealth gap. Like right now, there's a massive, massive wealth gap between, you know, the haves and the haves not. And the main difference in there is assets. So the, the haves, the people who are wealthy, obviously have assets. And the people who don't, well, obviously, they're falling behind. And inflation does mean wage growth. And we are seeing some wage growth. But like the people of today, they're graduating. And it's not like before where they can just jump into a job, unless you're good qualifications, like the really in-demand qualifications. And they're getting paid really good money. But let's say, just say the average person is now competing on a global scale. So work from home. What's that mean? That means I could be sitting in Bali and working for somewhere in Vancouver. You can basically work from anywhere in the world and do that arbitrage, location arbitrage, and just live over there and work over here. And then you also are competing with people from outside the country, you know, China, India, various other places. And then you're also competing with robots, AI. So all those things, the technology is deflationary. Like the better the technology, the lower the cost. So one of the major inputs is labor. And technology, be it Zoom or AI or robots, that is capping labor costs, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're dealing with. And then on the flip side, we're talking about the real inflation of building a home, assets, that sort of a thing. And those are going up because of this monetary policy. So if the government is printing money and they'll say, we're trying to help out people who need money. And they needed money. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. So the CERB and all those other policies, people needed money. People should have stayed home during a pandemic, all that sort of thing. And they print a lot of that money. But the difference is they didn't target it to specific people in need. They just blanketed everybody. So loads of people who are still working, still making lots of money, got some kind of government assistance. And they didn't know what to do with it. So that's why we saw saving rates go through the roof. So what they did was they bought real estate, they bought hard assets because they saw this inflation happening. They saw that in their bank accounts, they were getting less than 1%. They bought stocks, they bought crypto, and all that stuff took off. That's the main reason. If this inflation narrative keeps going the way it is, they're going to keep getting richer and richer and richer. Whereas the people who really needed the money to pay rent, to put food on the table, what did they do with their money? They spent it, right? They had to spend it. That's what it was there for. But if their wages don't keep up, the food prices, the rent and everything else is going to keep going higher, but their wages are not going to do well. And because of all this money printing, that's inflationary. So it's actually all the money printing is going to definitely hurt the group that is the most vulnerable. And the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. So what I'm going to be telling my students is you have to recognize that money in the bank is deflationary. Its buying power is going to lose and it's losing its buying power faster than it was previously. The government's economists will say it's 2%. You know, I call BS on that. I'd say it's at least double or triple that, the real inflation in our economy. So they should be buying assets. That's the, what they'll have to do. It could be as simple as buying an S&P 500 ETF, which you can put in any denomination. I wrote an article for CBC where you put in $5 a day 
by the time you retire when you're 18 to 65, that's well worth over a million if you kept up with the plan. Or if you're saving for a down payment, you're five years out. There's so many strategies. I'm not going to say this is what you should do, but probably what I would do is I would get something that's relatively stable. If you're thinking this money, this down payment is set aside for real estate, then you can invest it in real estate through a REIT, private, public, whatever it is. And then by the time you actually need it to buy your place, then you sell it. And then that as your down payment, because then at least should have kept up with inflation. You would have gotten quote unquote rent payments along the way. And if there's appreciation, then that would have helped. So people nowadays, in my mind, have to be way more strategic, have to really worry about inflation risk when most people really worry about market risk. But I would say, again, inflation risk is the, the biggest problem out there and something that we have to sort of change our thinking around and how we react to that. Mark, do you think it's a good time to invest in real estate right now? Yes. I mean, it's, the question is real estate. I mean, what does that mean? It could be an apartment. It could be a multifamily. It could be an international. So I think everybody should be investing in real estate in one form or another. If I was a young person and I had limited funds and I wanted to buy like a house or an apartment or like a physical where I can go there and visit it, you know, that may mean you buy something in Calgary or somewhere else in the States, who knows, whatever you can afford. If it's, yeah, mostly for your principal residence, that's what I'd say, like get in on the property ladder, right? It might not be the best, your sort of dream home turnkey, but if you can afford it, look at your budget, you know, try to get in. And then, you know, you're probably going to have to buy and sell a couple of times before you reach a point where, okay, this is my final home. And, you know, I did that. Didn't get my dream home right away. I, I think that's unrealistic. But at least that way, you'll sort of flow with the market and your buying power will stay there. There's other advantages too. For the time being, principal residents are tax exempt, any gains on there. You can borrow against your property. There's a lot of utility on with that. I think that borrowing against your property is something that's very much overlooked. Like, and I'm not saying borrow it like an ATM and go on vacations and buy boats or, you know, your Lambo. But the way I started was I had a property and I got some equity. I borrowed 50,000. I bought a little commercial property with partners that doubled in a couple of years, took that money, paid down my mortgage, readvanced it and kept on doing little projects until the point where I could do bigger projects. Because there's always that debate. Should I rent and invest the rest? Or should I buy, pay down my mortgage, and then, you know, hopefully because of leverage and hopefully because of opportunities where I can borrow against that to invest, you'll do better off. And I think the latter, if you're disciplined and you have game plans, mm-hmm. it works so well. Like that's changed my life. There's no way I'd be able to buy any of this stuff that I had and pay down my mortgage as fast as I could without using that tool my advantage. So having a home is very much a tool. It's, it's an investment. It's a place to live and it's a tool, but it's like fire. You know, if you can get burned if you use it improperly. Right. But that's what I was thinking. Your ability to take advantage of that opportunity in Mount Pleasant and without knowing exactly how you did it, massive lines of credit in which you use to buy it cash. If you're not in that property market, that's pretty much impossible, right? I mean, you're utilizing your position really well, but that's a great point about home equity lines of credit and how how, uh, beneficial they can be. It's one of the things we look for. Like we're specifically looking for underpriced properties. Like properties we're getting are not turnkey. So they're basically dumps that seller insists on clear, clean deals. 
like if someone insists on a clean deal, you know, that's going to scare away a lot of people, you know, selling as is, you put that in your title, that's going to scare away tons of people because mm -hmm. they, they're going to obviously assume that something's wrong with it. Of course, there is tons of stuff. So that limits your buying pool. And those are the puddles we're swimming in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You still like real estate and we're talking kind of various forms, potentially, you know, private real estate investment condos, that type of thing. But you're big on REITs as well and real estate outside of British Columbia. If somebody was to say, Mark, COVID, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Some people are talking about the roaring 20s. Some people are talking about interest rates increasing quicker than people thought because of inflation. Like if you could say, here's three potential investments that I would be considering right now. Can you kind of line up three kind of exciting areas that you're monitoring for our listeners? Matt's got his Well Simple app open. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how much hassle you're willing to put up with. So my feeling is I'm looking at long-term trends. And one of the long-term trends that I foresee based on my experience over the last year is I think there's going to be fewer and fewer mom and pop type renovators and landlords. And the reasons I say that is the city is very intrusive in this stuff. Like we did everything right. We hired architects, engineers, got all of our permits. But if you've ever dealt with the city, I'm not saying it's not common. Well, maybe it is lack of common sense, but they have rules and they're black and white. And if you often, it doesn't make sense. I'll just give you a quick example. Like we had a big tree in our backyard and we had a deck that was falling apart. And we had our engineer go in there and deal with all the decking and everything. And we got our permits, uh, tree stayed there, but then the city asked, oh, what about the tree in the front yard? And we're like, we don't have a tree in the front yard. There's a tree on the boulevard, like across from the sidewalk, but that's not our tree. That's the parks board tree. So this it caused our project to have a standstill, like this particular tree. They're like, well, you know, technically you should be doing an Arbor's report on that tree and we need a new survey to prove that tree is not yours, even though it's to me and everybody else, it's very obviously it was not ours. So those are frustrations. Like, I mean, these are the city, they're just doing their job, but those are sort of frustrations. And then we think about, okay, what's the point of that tree and looking at that particular tree? Because the city wants to protect trees. But the thing is, our tree, where all the construction was happening, was in our backyard, not even close to that tree. We have laneway access, no heavy machinery was going even close to that tree. It was all going to the back, no issues. So we argued this back and forth. And to me, that's common sense, like no damage there. And ultimately, you know, they asked for surveys, reports and all this other stuff, which would have accounted for about seven to eight grand. In my mind, that's seven to eight grand just being thrown away. So Ugh. again, stalls and everything like that. Ultimately, we got it resolved. But that type of thing drives people nuts. And it's just like, do you want to put up with that sort of thing, knowing that that's going to happen? Laneway houses too. You hear lots of frustrations with people getting laneway houses, like the amount of mental agony, like people go through the process and after a month, they'll be almost arguing with their wives and husbands and it's just not worth it for a lot of people. And again, that's a five-year process. Yeah, getting and, trapped in the bureaucracy. Yeah, and it's a lot of money, like connecting sewage pipes and stuff like that. You know, the bill is like 30 grand. But that's not the work. That's just to get the permit, 30 grand, just to have that access. There's a lot of stuff like that that drives people nuts. Renovations, very specific on you have to buy your window from the store. This has to be this grade. And the difference between same energy efficient window that's good in Burnaby or Richmond costs 400 bucks. 
but the one in Vancouver costs 800 bucks, and they're sort of rated the same. All those sorts of things get frustrating when you're trying to put a project together. And then on the flip side, um, we're talking about inflation, you know, property taxes, strata insurance, insurance, all that stuff is going up well more than 2%, but your rental can only go up by, we'll say, by inflation, by 2%. So you know, over the long term, the rent, the longer it goes, that renter, as long as they stay there, they're sort of getting more of the advantage and you're going to be taking on more of the burden. So I just imagine like a lot of mom and pop people will just say, okay, it's just not worth it. The amount of money we got to put in there, the rate of return. Ultimately, if the property does really well, they can make a lot of money, but that's on the capital gain side, capital appreciation side, as opposed to the revenue side. Or so again, so less mom and pops, who's going to take over? Someone's going to take over. And I think the bigger companies are going to take over. So the REITs of the world, the real estate income trust, the big players who have the economy of scale, who are now buying tracks of single family homes, as well as multifamily, as well as office, as well as industrial. And they can just go in there and they can make the numbers work because they do a lot of the work themselves. They never use insurance because if something goes wrong, they can go in there and fix it as opposed to dealing with all these crazy strata insurances claims like Vancouver House is going to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if that's the trend, and I think that is the trend, then I'm like, all right, I think for a lot of people who don't want to deal with the hassle of the you know building and renovating and bureaucracy, they could just invest alongside the big people who do that. They obviously don't make as much money, but they'll have a fairly stable return of, we'll say, 7 to 10% a year over time, right? So that, that's sort of the thing. And then you got the diversification of being geographic. So if you buy you know, a REIT, it could be a multifamily. It could be a mixture of all those things I talked about, plus in all different places. So there's a lot of safety aspects of it. For older folks, for people who don't want to deal with tenants and, and all the hassles, I think REITs are probably a great way to go if you really like real estate. For younger people who are getting into this and are willing to roll up their sleeves and get some work done, I think you're better off buying properties because then you get the advantage of the leverage and you get the advantage of being able to take out equity in the futures. It all depends on what stage of life you are and how much hassle you want to go for. Now, before I'd be more skewed towards buying the property, putting in the work and working with it. But now that the variables have changed, now that the prices of everything has gone up so much and that you're capped on the rental side, I'm skewing more to the other side where it's just the hassle's not worth it anymore. So, and these things could flip flop. Mm-hmm. You know, it could come to a point where things settle down, strata insurance doesn't get as more expensive. Maybe they'll repeal those rules where you can charge a little bit more rent to keep up with the real inflation, that sort of a thing. But right now, my main question to the person who is asking me this was like, how much do you want to be involved? What are you willing to do? What's the opportunity cost of that down payment and that money versus the benefit of leverage? Because the benefit of leverage is a big thing. If you buy a REIT, Generally, you're not leveraging. You're not buying, you know, five hundred thousand dollars in a REIT. You might be putting in your down payment. So it's not an easy question to answer. And then you also have to figure out which REIT to buy. There's a lot of moving parts. The main thing would be actually sitting down, finding out what your priorities are, and coming up with a game plan and how it fits with your overall finances. Because I know a person who really likes real estate and was complaining that she's renting because she spent fifty thousand dollars in rent. And I was like, okay. That's a lot of money. She's obviously renting a decent place, but then she's debating. Okay, she buy a place, then she doesn't have to rent. So she bought a place for 1.7 million, to say 50,000. Like in my mind, that doesn't make sense. 
1.7 million for $50,000 savings. Naturally, there's other benefits, pride of ownership, you know, capital gains. You don't have to pay on your principal residence, but you could have put in, you know, a million dollars and quite easily raised that $50,000 and use that $50,000 to pay your rent. You know, there's opportunity cards, chess pieces that you can play around with and find out what's good. Now, ultimately, she really wanted to buy a place. I said, perfect. You know, it's going to do well. That $1.7 million house is going to be worth, you know, $3 million at one point if inflation keeps going the way it's going. So she's perfectly happy with that decision. That ultimately, that's what you're planning. You're talking to people to find out what their goal and what makes them happy and what they're willing to do. And then you just go with it. I rather spend $1.7 million and keep that $1.7 million in her bank account where I know in a couple of years it'd be, have the buying power of a million dollars. So real estate, whether it's private or REITs, is something it seems like you're bullish on, of course, with the caveats. And you know your answer was obviously much more complicated than that. But I'm kind of interested in two other things you would say are buys right now. You know, we've mentioned crypto before. I bought crypto for my kid's Christmas present last year. And it you know, we just had a pretty significant dump. Like uh, Elon Musk really dropped the price. He's a very influential guy and he caused uh, quite a big correction. And even though I bought, you know, in December for my kids, they're still up 200%. It's going to say your kids will never have to work. No, I didn't buy a Bitcoin. I bought them some Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a full Bitcoin. I bought them $500 each worth. And the reason I did that is the same thing. It's the same narrative. I want them to have something that's going to protect against inflation. There's a lot of opinions out there. I just happen to be one of them. And I'm a believer that I think Bitcoin is going to have a play a part in that. And the whole cryptocurrency does has a lot of utilization, not perfect by any means. But, you know, I own a fair amount of various cryptocurrencies. Mostly I stick to just the big main ones, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums of the world. That's the bulk of my portfolio. But I would suggest that everybody just dip a toe in. So this is what I told my kids. I go, I could have bought them a PS5 for a thousand bucks back then. That's what they're going for. Or I can give $500 worth of Bitcoin each. And I said, this is the way it works. If there's adoption, what, this is what, how cryptos work. If there's a network effect where people actually start using this and it becomes adopted, it'll be kind of like the Amazon of the world. Like Bitcoin will be sort of like the Amazon. So Amazon has the best network effect. There could be another website out there that's way faster, way sleeker, cheaper on both sides. But the fact is, they're not going to take over Amazon because everyone uses Amazon. It's so hard to push off that throne. Now, if I'm wrong, well, my kids will lose, you know, we'll say most of their money. We'll say if Bitcoin gets dethroned, that Bitcoin goes from $500 to $50 and they lose a bunch of money. However, if I'm right, then there's a decent chance that that Bitcoin will go from $500 to a million dollars. And depending on who you believe, could be a couple of years, could be 10 years. I just told them 10 years. So your downside risk, again, it's all risk analysis, your downside risk is $400, your upside risk is almost $50,000. So I said, this is what you do, just a little bit of money, you can afford to lose, just dip your toe in the water and buy it. And if it happens to be going the way, you know, I hope it's going to go, if that becomes a million dollars, well, then that's a meaningful amount of money for my kids to have in 10 years time. In the future, people will think less in terms of dollars, I believe. They'll think in terms of other things. Yes, you could say a house has gone up $2 million or whatever it is. 
that's how they think now. But in the future, they might be, okay, that house is equated to one and a half Bitcoin or two million, two Bitcoin or 30 Bitcoin or whatever it is. So it's going to be a change of thought process. And we're seeing that already happening in other countries that don't have a very strong banking system that have to rely on cryptocurrencies. And that's where you're going to see a lot of the change happen. So I would say real estate should be a good portion, like more real estate than crypto. But for anybody who doesn't have crypto, when there's big drops like we're seeing today, you know, maybe now's the time just to buy some. And again, not a lot, enough you can afford to lose, but there's a lot of smart people who believe it's going to very well and will be an integral part of our financial system. And yeah, I, again, I look at long-term trends. This is a trend that I've been on for a number of years, and uh, I think that it's worth considering. Right. So buy the it's dip. Yeah, I buy the dip on everything. Like I try to. Like tech stuff is dropping quite a bit, and process this by saying I never get the bottom. Like I buy early and I buy late, but it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like a year later or two years later, if it's rebounded by that time, you've done fine. I remember my first place I've ever bought, which was a Yale Town apartment, thousand square feet, right in front of David Lamb Park. I overpaid for it. It was listed at two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And I bought it off my aunt, who is extremely rich, but also extremely cheap. And she wouldn't sell it to me uh, for 230 She sold it for me 250 And I was pissed at the time. I was like, oh, my God, my family is ripping me off. But I bought it because she gave me flexible payment plan type of a thing. And then two years later, I sold it for like 400 So did it matter if I bought it for 230 or 250 It really didn't matter, you know, years later if things go according to the plan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the message is to keep investing. That's the message. Like invest early and just keep doing it regardless of what the markets are doing. You know, pick your points, invest in a bunch of different things that aren't correlated. That's probably going to really give you a strong portfolio, overall portfolio. Lastly, so we got real estate, we got crypto. Third buy, Mark, as a final question. Third buy, stock market. You don't have to pick a fancy one. Like I'm perfectly fine with people buying you know, ETFs, global ETFs, exchange traded fund, those are easy ways to buy the stock market. Uh, stock markets, again, if you believe in inflation, inflation means prices go up, assets go up. And that wealth gap, again, you sort of want to be on the one side of the wealth gap as much as possible. And you want to be in the stock market. That means prices go up. And if you just buy like an S&P 500, like what I would be telling my students to do, they rotate companies in and out of there. You'll have the winners, you'll have the losers. And after a while, the losers will fall off and then they'll put in new companies. So it's a good way to just have a breadth of investments in all different industries. And you just, you know, set it and forget it. Just invest, keep investing every month or every week, or some people do it every day, you know, they do their $5 a day and don't look at it too much as it goes up and down. And just try the big mistake that people do is they get greedy or they get fearful and they over-concentrate. Like, Crypto went up, you know, some of this stuff went up a thousand times. Like Bitcoin went up, we'll say two times now, or I'm not even sure right now. And they'll say, oh, I got all this other stuff in the stock market that's down 30%. Crypto went up 300%. And then they start moving, sell that and start going into crypto. And just when that happens, that's when crypto crashes. You got to sort of resist over-concentrating in the stuff that's doing well and just sort of level it out on occasion, take profits to make sure that you're, I think of it as a recipe so that the ingredients weightings are about the same all the time. And sometimes if something goes really high, like crypto, you got to trim it back down and, and buy stuff that's doing not as good because you know, eventually they're going to flip flop in each other 
which is exactly what's happening. Yeah, have a plan, but any investments right now. Fiat money is going to be struggling. Like money in the bank is going to be struggling. You don't want to keep it there. You want to keep it in assets that are growing. There's going to be more volatility. There just is. There's more leverage in the world. There's more debt in the world. There's more money printing. So you just got to be able to handle your own emotions. That's the number one thing. It's not picking the right stock or the right crypto. It's it's you handling your own emotions. Real estate's the same way. Like one of the main reasons I like private REITs is because there's no emotions involved. To sell a private REIT takes about a couple months. If you say, Mark, I want to get out of my private REIT, a couple months. If you want to sell your public REIT, I can do it in one second. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. means you're susceptible to fear and greed. Like we always say, sleep on a big decision. Well, people aren't sleeping. When markets are crashing, they're just, get out, I want to get out. So they panic, so they sell. And that pushes, that just makes those stocks, those REITs, even though the intrinsic value is much higher, is like they're selling at a massive discount purely on that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the private ones, there's that delay. So that's why they did well in 2020. So when I bought back in 2020, late after it sort of rebounded, and I wanted to replenish my real estate front, I bought a mixture of private and public. And I bought the private, that's the building aspect that I was talking about. But I bought the public stuff too, because it was highly discounted. You're buying, I think I sent you one. We were buying, you can Google it, Bank of America Tower, Jacksonville, Florida. And it was a beautiful building. It's like their nicest, beautiful building. And we were buying it for 78 cents a square foot. Like, that's insane. An apartment over here would go for $1,000 a square foot. So those are sort of things you want to look at. Naturally, I'm comparing office to residential, but there's always deals when there's lots of fear and greed and emotion. So you want to sort of take advantage of that. Could keep going lower. Absolutely. But overall, like you wait a year, six months, and then things recover. And typically those are the best, best deals. So keep the money moving, but keep your emotions out of it. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. There's a lot to unpack and think about there. But how can people uh, follow along with what you're doing and find out more about what you're doing? I'm fairly public. So obviously CBC, I'm on that show every Thursday afternoon at about 4.50 on the radio. I do write a couple articles as well. I'm not all that active on Twitter. We do webinars. So foundationwealth.ca, if you go to the news part, there's a couple webinars links where you can see uh, me and my partners just discussing, just having a conversation like this about what we think is going in the market and how we're positioning things. So a lot of people find that quite useful. Our, our website as well is a good place to go. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Mark, for your time. Once again, you're approaching the Five Timers Club here, I think, on the podcast, but we always appreciate your time. The gold jacket's in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks so much. All right, take care. Goodbye. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Mark Ting, CBC's Guide to Personal Finance and partner at Foundation Wealth. Always enjoy that conversation uh, with uh, having a conversation, I should say, with any conversation with Mark Ting. And uh, I was scribbling. My my pen was smoking. You know Um, what the thing is, is Mark is one of those guys where uh, he's a combination of two things that you want, right? And I feel like this is the way I think of of us in specifically in the real estate world. But Mark is obsessed with investing and watching for opportunities. And he works in a business in which him and the other guys at Foundation Wealth, they're putting on webinars. Uh, he's working with high net worth individuals. He's living and breathing this stuff. 
uh, in a way where it's just like, man, you you turn on record and you hit play and he can do an hour and it's like, this is, he's, he's, and, he's, and he's giving got, out great advice. And he's got a lot of integrity and he's, uh, and he's giving you sound advice that he actually believes in, right? Like he's giving you. And, and he's, unpacking he's, what he did. He's cautious enough. Uh, but Definitely. he also, but he also, you know, I, I think Mark Ting is a great guy, uh, for for something like this, right? To kind of to allocate where you want to be, because really, it's it, a lot of it's wealth preservation or or just making sure that you keep money um, and don't lose it, right? Right. So there's um, limits in how much risk you should take on, and I think that was a fantastic episode from someone who's uh, done very well this past year and is in the trenches. Yeah, in the trenches, day in and day out. Uh, really enjoyed that. But Matt, what else do we have? Before we cut for the day. What else do we have for the day, Adam? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where all things real estate related live. You can do things like sign up for the live wire. This is our weekly mailer with things like pre-sale opportunities, deal of the month, stats before anyone else has them, episodes. There's no reason you don't want to be on this list. We also have the new revamped Private Client Services. Yeah, Matt, if you're not using Private Client Services, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available on our site, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And then last but not least... One more shout out to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, currently in the top 40 on Apple Business, uh, iTunes, I guess, iTunes, Apple Business. Apple Podcasts, top Apple Podcasts, top 40 business. Anyways, whatever top it is. Top of the charts. It's a real feather in Corey's hat, which already has several feathers. And it's, and <laughs> I, maybe, it's almost like maybe there's many. a feather in his suit pocket too. There's a lot of feathers. There's a lot of expensive feathers in Corey's hat. And he deserves every feather in that cap. That's, uh, that is exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking. All those feathers well-deserved. So congrats on your hat, Corey, and congrats yeah. on the podcast. And congrats on flying here next week. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. You don't have wings. Uh, just a lot of feathers. Uh, anyways, we should cover the day. How can people get in touch? Well, if you want to talk about private client services, uh, anything real estate related at all in Vancouver or outside of Vancouver, give me a shout, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. All right, guys. We'll hope you really enjoyed that program and uh, definitely tune in next week. We've got a fantastic show. On Thursdays. This is Thursdays. our new day. We're launching yeah. Thursdays. We're like friends. We're What? Wait, friends? What? It was, on Thursdays. On Thursdays. it was on Thursdays. It was on Thursdays? Absolutely. You really outed yourself as a real loser. Uh, when they to edit that. Yeah, Braden will maybe maybe edit that. Whoa. You also, you were a big fan of Blossom. Uh, were you TGIF? You were probably... Uh, no, but I, I think there wasn't there... Like, there was, you listen. You watched Friends, eh? I feel oh, like, come on. I did not. I've never... You're a bit of a, a, bit of a Ross Geller. Not that I've seen it. <laughs> Luckily, we're editing this. Yeah. Have a good week, guys. Yeah, have a good week.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 